0: Well, we are continuing this morning with our study through Psalm 119. Today we're looking at the 11th stanza of that psalm, which is verses 81 to 88. Uh, It's obvious as you're reading this psalm that the psalmist is living in the midst of a culture that does not like him, basically, that does not like the things he stands for. Uh, He's like a pilgrim in a hostile land. And this reality comes up all through prayers in Psalm 119. He prays about the challenge of living a pure life in a culture that's going the complete opposite direction. He asks the Lord to deal bountifully with him so that he can keep the word of God in his life. He needs the help of the Lord. He prays about civil magistrates who are working against him. He grieves over the great sins he sees in his life, but also that he sees in the culture. He is regularly committing himself to walking out and to being being obedient to the word of God. He asks for God to continue to give him greater understanding of His commandments and all and the help he needs for being more consistent in living them out. In verses and or I'm sorry, in stanzas nine and ten, the psalmist gets more specific about the trials that he's dealing with. The men he describes there as being arrogant men. Men who had uh, were besmearing him with lies, uh, hard afflictions for any person to deal with, especially one who is intent to being a godly example, which he was. But one thing he is sure of, no matter what his circumstances are, he is absolutely sure that God is good. Therefore, since God is good, what He does is good. He's dealing with the psalmist in ways that are good, and. So he recognizes the affliction that he's enduring as being sent by God for his good. He says to the Lord, in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. I mean, what a difference that makes when we can see our trials in that way, from that perspective. Because even when it's hard, we can be confident that the Lord, who is perfectly good, is sovereign over everything that is happening to us. Therefore, we can trust him. (coughs) Well, in the stanza we're looking at this morning... The psalmist gives us some insight into how difficult it has been in dealing with those hard trials. You can tell he feels like he's like at the end of his rope. But that doesn't mean he's turning away from the Lord. Not at all. Instead, he continues to take these most difficult feelings and concerns and hard questions directly to God in prayer. So let's read Psalm 119 verses 81 to 88. My soul languishes for your salvation, I wait for your word. My eyes fail with longing for your word, while I say, when will you comfort me? Though I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your statutes. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with your law. All your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. They almost destroyed me on the earth, but as for me, I did not forsake your, your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. So the psalmist is not wavering in his commitment to the Lord, but he is really struggling Is he's come to a break, what seems to be a breaking point in his life. And it's in this most difficult time that he goes directly to the Lord. Doesn't try to hide his feelings, doesn't try to hide his frustrations. He is very open as he prays. This is a very good example for us to learn from. Having times that we feel downcast is not uncommon. And we see a number of basic principles in this stanza that can help us know how to pray. When we find ourselves feeling overwhelmed. By the way, before I forget, there's a couple books back here, resources that if you would like to read more about this kind of thing, there's a couple books back there that will help. One is on lament. One is on uh, by Leek Duncan. I forget what its title was. The title of it. When pain, when pain is real and God is silent. So anyway, a couple more resources back there if you're interested. In these verses, we're going to look at this stanza in two different sections. First, in verses 81 to 84 the psalmist takes his very honest and personal lament directly to the Lord. And in the second, in verses 85 to 88, the psalmist continues to take his lament to the Lord, but in those verses, he goes into some detail about what his enemies are doing and brings that into the, into the prayer. So our first main point is this. When feeling exhausted in body and soul, you can take your frustrations, concerns, and questions to the Lord in prayer. The psalmist is truly exhausted and greatly frustrated over the things that are going on around him and with him. God has not intervened like he had hoped he would. But that doesn't mean, like we said, that he turns his back on the Lord. Not at all. Even in the midst of this difficulty, he is as committed to the Lord as he has ever been. And because of that relationship that he has with the Lord, he takes every frustration, every hard question directly to his God. The opening verse gives us a good feel for the rest of the stanza. My soul languishes for your salvation. I wait for your word. It's a statement that's really full of pain and heartache, but even in the midst of a soul that's languishing, the psalmist is waiting or hoping in faith for the word of God. So here's what we can learn from this verse. It can feel like your soul, it can feel like your soul is wearing thin as you hope for God's saving intervention. Be honest about that with the Lord. When the psalmist says his soul languishes, he's talking about a deep longing, a longing to the point of exhaustion. It can be also translated as his soul wearing thin. There's likely physical fatigue Going on here, but it's especially soul fatigue that seems to be the, the, the focus. His inner man is languishing with deep longings. He says he's longing for God's salvation. And one thing we need to keep in mind is that as an Old Testament believer, he was constantly looking with expectation for the salvation that God would provide through the promised Messiah. Now, as a believer in the coming Messiah, he already had that salvation. He was already saved, so to speak. But also as a believer, he longed for the day when the Messiah would come to the earth. And even though he already had that salvation by faith because he was trusting in the Messiah to come, he would, he wanted, he'd had a desire to continue to grow and mature in that salvation. Now, that's really just as true for him as it, as it is for us. I mean, if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, then you have salvation. But that doesn't mean that now it's time to move on to the next thing because we continue to grow in our appreciation and our understanding and our application of of what the Lord has done for us in Christ. In fact, when you think about it, I was just looking back. Every song that we sang this morning had something to do with Christ and the salvation he's provided for us. In uh, Psalm 72, which was read and we also sang, it was prophesied that the Christ would have dominion over land and sea. And then we prayed along along with the Lord's prayer, so to speak, when it says your kingdom come, we're praying that his kingdom of grace would continue to come and be expressed even more fully in this world. We sang about the Father's deep love for us. And that deep love for us is shown through the Savior he provides for us. Especially hit by that phrase where it says he takes people who are wretches. I looked that up. It means the idea of being despicable, contemptible. He's taken wretches and made them his treasure by Christ and through Christ. We sang about that this morning. We sang about the fact that we want Christ to be the focus of every part of our day. It's really the kind of same thing. We're still longing for the salvation and growing in the salvation we already have. And so in in some ways, I think that's similar to what the psalmist was doing. So it's normal and right to have that kind of focus on Christ. But we also need to note here that the word for salvation also speaks of deliverance. So, the psalmist may also have in mind his great desire for the Lord to deliver him, to save him from the terrible affliction that he was having to endure. So, it probably has a practical aspect to it for his particular circumstances. He was hoping in God's word, which gave him confidence that he knew the Lord would come to his aid. And he knew that he desperately needed the Lord to save him. In fact, his soul was wearing thin in hope for God's intervention. And he told the Lord about that. We've got to do the same thing. If you get to the place where you feel like your soul is wearing thin, tell him. Confess that to the Lord as you pray. There's no one more committed to help you than he is. Then the psalmist builds on that opening line of his prayer in verse 82. He says, my eyes fail with longing for your word. While I say, when will you comfort me? So here's something else we can do when our soul is wearing thin, and that is continue to earnestly seek the Lord in his word, but also be open with him about questions that trouble you. Questions that trouble you. He goes from speaking of the languishing of his soul to speaking of eyes that are fa- failing with longing. They are straining after the promises of the word. In other words, even at a time when he feels that he's coming to the end of his rope. He continues to pursue the Lord in prayer through his word. Another important example for us, no matter how frustrated or overwhelmed we feel, we always must continue to go to the Lord, to pursue the Lord, and especially pursue his word. We do not turn away from the Lord when things are difficult. We do not neglect the scriptures. If we do that, we're actually throwing away the only hope we really have in what we're going through. Well, in the midst of his soul languishing for the deliverance of the Lord, his eyes failing with longing for the word, the psalmist asked this first question. When will you comfort me? He needs comfort from God. And he's also recognized his need for comfort in the preceding stanza. If you just look back a few verses in 76 and 77, Oh, may your loving kindness comfort me. According to your word, to your servant, may your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. So he knows, he's expressed it before and he's expressing it now, how much he needs what we described last week as the tender mercies of God. He knows how much he needs the Lord to come alongside him, to hold him up, to see him through the heavy burden that he's, that he's enduring. Well, does the word of God promise that God will comfort his people? Yes, it does. Let me give you a couple examples. Isaiah chapter twelve, verse one says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Several places in Isaiah, Isaiah forty nine thirteen. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. And then 51, 3, Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and her wilderness will be like he will make like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and sound of a melody. So the psalmist is seeking the Lord in his word, asking about comfort, knowing that God has promised and given examples of when he has comforted his people. He knows that, but he has not felt that comfort, at least not in the way that he's expecting. And he desperately needs that sustaining comfort that he knows only God can give him. So he asked asked the Lord about that in prayer. Now notice, he's not praying and asking if the Lord's going to comfort him. He's asking when. He knows it's going to happen. This is a prayer of faith, but it's a, can we do it quicker? So he's struggling, but he's still trusting God to comfort him. If you skip down to verse 84, we'll see the psalmist has more questions. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? That first question, how many are the days of your servant? Well, he may be asking, how much longer is this suffering and persecution going to last? In the last few verses, he's going to elaborate on why it's been so hard. How much longer is it going to last? He may be saying that he can't go much longer under these conditions. So if the Lord does not speedily come to save him, he knows he's going to lose his life in a matter of days even. But note this, even when asking pointed questions to the Lord, he asks as the Lord's servant, how many are the days of your servant? That's the context. That's who he is. He will endure whatever the Lord brings across his path as long as the Lord determines For this servant to endure this. He cannot see how it can last much longer, but he's going to press on. Now let me mention this too about the psalmist's pointed questions to the Lord. It seems very much like he's complaining to the Lord about his situation. But as we noted, it's complaint in faith. He's complaining in faith. There is a place for complaining to the Lord in the context of faith. What you have to be careful is complaining about the Lord to other people. That's a lack of faith. But there's a place for complaining to the Lord in prayer and in faith. Well, he builds on this theme in verse 83. Though I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your statutes. So from this, our next point, in the midst of your great frustration, recognize in faith that God will certainly execute his righteous judgment in his own timing. Recognize that in faith. The psalmist compares his situation to a wineskin and the smoke. When a wineskin would hang in smoke, was exposed to smoke, especially for a Uh, a longer period of time, it would dry out, it would begin to crack, it would become brittle, and because of that, it could no longer be used to hold wine. It becomes useless. That's how the psalmist sees himself. His situation has become so intense, has become so difficult, so overwhelming, that he could see himself being on the verge of just being useless This is why he would ask in the next few verses, how many more days do I have? He knew that he couldn't last much longer, and he doesn't sugarcoat this. Things have gotten really bad. But notice the second question of verse 84. He says, when will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? Once again, a very pointed question. again it's asked in faith it is asked by one who is a committed servant of the Lord it is asked by one who knows that the true God his God is just and righteous he knows that the Lord will execute judgment on all that is evil the problem is there are evil people who seem to be running roughshod over him they seem to have free reign to do whatever they want without repercussions He knows that can't last because he knows the Lord. Vengeance is up to the Lord. Vengeance is in his hands. And he's trusting the Lord to execute judgment, but he's doing it as one who knows he can't hold out much longer. His hope is that God would execute judgment sooner instead of later. His hope is that the Lord would save him. His hope is that God will give him comfort. While he perseveres through all this. And again, all this he takes to the Lord in prayer. This is his prayer. When we're exhausted, when we're overwhelmed with life, we can take all that frustration directly to the Lord. It is really amazing to see how the psalmist asks such hard questions to the sovereign Lord, but again, he does it from the perspective of faith. The God is his God. So in these verses, it's clear that the psalmist sees his God as being the one who saves. He knows God is the one who comforts. He knows God will surely execute judgment in his time. And he sees his God also as the one who graciously reveals what is true. So he sees his God as being trustworthy because he really believes that the Lord's going to keep his word. In fact, in the midst of these complaints, He reinforces his own commitment to the word of God like he's done all through this psalm. Verse 81, he's waiting or hoping for God's word. Verse 82, his eyes fail with longing for God's word. Verse 83, no matter how hard it gets, he will not forget the statutes of God. I mean, he continues to keep that in front of him. Just a great example, again, for us in our frustrations, our concerns, our hard questions in in prayer. We do it with the knowledge that even though we don't know the details of what's going on, we know our God can be trusted. We know he can be trusted. We can feel frustrated, and we can tell him about that, but we know we can trust him. In the second half of this stanza, the psalmist continues this lament to the Lord, but now he gets more specific about the people who are doing the persecuting, the people who are making his affliction so painful. So look again in verses 85 to 88. The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with your law. All your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. They almost destroyed me on earth, but as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. So our second main point is this. As part of your lament to the Lord about overwhelming trials, you can openly appeal to him about the wicked actions of his enemies. So these final four verses of the psalm, psalmist doesn't pull any punches. He spoke of his persecutors in verse 84, and now he complains to the Lord about how truly wicked these people were. There's five different ways that the psalmist describes these enemies of God. First, The enemies of God are described as arrogant. He begins verse 85 with that description. He's spoken of the enemies of God as being arrogant several times already in previous stanzas. To be arrogant, of course, is to be self-centered. It's to be focused on what you want, no matter what is right and wrong. It's to be self-sufficient. And the truth is, every single one of us struggle with pride at various times. But this arrogance, this kind of arrogance... (laughs) is putting itself in the place of God. As Christians, Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. We are his children, we are his servants, and it's his will that is primary in our life. The arrogant who are vowed enemies of God have no place in their life for the lordship of Christ. Second, the enemies of God are described as putting forth great effort to do harm to others. Effort to do harm to others. In verse 85, we see that these arrogant men have dug pits for the psalmist. Of course, that's the thing; it's just a metaphor. I don't know if it's a literal pit, but he's using it as an idea. Well, one thing that that does read, do, I don't know how many pits you've dug in your life, but I haven't dig, dug a whole lot myself. But that's a lot of work to dig a pit for the sake of trapping something or someone in this case. So these men were working hard. They were being very crafty, deceptive, and setting traps for this godly man. They want to ruin him. They want to ruin his reputation. They want to hinder anything the psalmist is doing in the context of furthering the kingdom of the Lord. Third, the enemies of God are described as rejecting biblical standards. Rejecting biblical standards. He says in verse 85, They are men who are not in accord with your law. They've rejected the standards of right and wrong as they're revealed in the the scriptures. So taking the Ten Commandments, for example, they are not concerned with the worship of the one true God as the first four commandments speak about. They're not concerned about honoring biblical marriage and family in line with the fifth commandment. They don't honor all life as being sacred before God. They're not concerned with moral purity. They do not respect the property of others and are perfectly willing to obtain property for themselves at the expense of their neighbor, and we could just kind of go on and on. But because of the self-centered arrogance and lack of true love for their neighbor, they are willing to violate every commandment of God to get what they want. Fourth, the enemies of God are described as willing, willingly using lies and deception to accomplish their goals. Verse 86, the psalmist says, These, They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. These men could find no fault with the psalmist in the way he was living. He was a man of integrity. The only way they could do harm in the eyes of the public was to lie about him. They would smear him with lies, as he said back in verse 69 and 78 earlier. They would use lie on top of lie to build a false narrative with the intent of bringing him down. They did not want people to look on him as an example. You may remember back in 74, verse 74, that the psalmist very much wanted to be a good example uh, to others, especially to fellow believers. I mean, he prayed this, Lord, he prayed, he said, May those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. Well, his enemies knew what a powerful example this godly man could be. And they didn't want that. They wanted to bring him down. Anyway, deception, whatever they had to do to bring him down. Finally, the enemies of God are described as trying to destroy, trying to destroy what is good and godly. Verse 87, the psalmist says, they almost destroyed me on the earth. So these men were out to destroy this man's uh, reputation. They were intent on destroying any hope he had of being an influence for the Lord, and they were most likely trying to kill him. We need to remember that apart from the Lord, we are all under the influence of the power of the prince of the air, according to the early verses of Ephesians 2. Of course, Satan is also known as Apollyon, which means destroyer, he is intent on destroying the people of God and de- intent on destroying the church, intent on destroying any Christian influence so that it makes sense that these enemies of God were willing to work to destroy what was good and godly. This didn't just happen in the Old Testament. A lot of this ought to sound pretty familiar to you. Because <laughs> this happens now. This is as real now as it's ever been. It's not people, what people used to be like. It's still the reality. It still is. You could take the latest news and you could fit all kinds of examples in every one of those things I just listed for you. I'm not going to do that. You can do that on your own. But it's real. Now, a couple applications I want to make from this. First one is this. In Romans 5... We are all described as enemies of God. All of us are. All of us are. There's a tendency to look at that and say, yeah, those are really bad people. Those people are really bad. We are wretches. (laughs) Romans 5 does describe us as being enemies of God. And that's really kind of the essence of what it is to be a sinner, is to be his enemy. So we can probably find applications even in our own life on some of these things that, are, that we've just mentioned. But we also are so grateful for this, that God in his grace has provided salvation for sinners. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, took on human flesh. He came to earth. He lived the righteous life. He died as a perfect sacrifice for wretches like us. He endured the wrath of God that we all deserve raised from the dead to confirm that perfect work of salvation. And all who put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord are no longer the enemies of God. We are his friends. We are his children, his adopted children. We are his servants. Second application I want to make is this. I want to bring an illustration from the life of Daniel. Daniel is... uh, Considered by some as a possible author of Psalm 119, and even if he wasn't, there are many, many applications to what we know of Daniel from this psalm that would fit, and this is one of them. In Daniel chapter 6, we are told that King Darius appointed Daniel as one of three commissioners who had charge of his whole kingdom. And Darius was so impressed with Daniel, he had proven himself so faithful and responsible that he intended to appoint him to rule over the whole kingdom. Well, his fellow commissioners, satraps they were also called, greatly resented Daniel. They wanted to be rid of him. But what do you do? The king loves him. We hate him. Daniel 6, verse 4 and 5. Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel, unless we find it against him with regard to, it, to the law of his God. They knew he was going to give up the law of God, so they had to find something. So they decide to lay a trap. They decide to dig a pit for this man. What they did, they convinced the king to sign a decree that prayer could not be made to anyone, any other God, any other person, except the king for 30 days. Anyone who violated that law would be thrown into the lion's den. Well, you know the rest of the story. Daniel continued to pray anyway. His fellow magistrates turned him in. Darius was heartbroken, but he was forced to throw Daniel to the lions. God delivered him. And then the Lord executed judgment on those who were persecuting Daniel because Darius had his accusers thrown into the lions. So many connections with these verses we just read. I wonder what Daniel was praying whenever he was on his knees, knowing what his rivals had just, the law they had just passed, and he kept praying. Could it have been this? I don't know for sure if it was, but there's so many things in this stanza that would fit very well with the prayer, with kind of things that I think might be on Daniel's mind. Praying for deliverance, praying for comfort, Praying for God to judge his enemies, he may very well have given these descriptions of his persecutors as part of this prayer. Again, I don't know whether, that, whether that, that's exactly what happened or not, but it does give us a flesh and blood example of what the psalmist was praying about in these verses. But the psalmist not only talked to God about his enemies in prayer, he also models an additional point here or another point. That's this, in the midst of persistent and painful attacks, we must remember that the commands of God, commandments of God are faithful, and we must not forsake them because of pressure from others. One of the temptations that may deal that, that, that many deal with when being frustrated and overwhelmed with great trials is to turn away from the Lord. It's amazing how oftentimes when people find themselves in the situations, they may stop coming to church stop reading their Bibles, stop praying. And so in the process, they're opening themselves up even to even greater pain and suffering because of those actions. The psalmist doesn't do that. He intentionally presses on in his faith. He keeps coming to the Lord in prayer. And he talks about the, and really as he talks about the Lord and his enemies, he continues to express his own commitment to the Lord and to his word. Verse 85, he says that his enemies did not act according to God's law. But the psalmist is the complete opposite. In the very next phrase, in verse 86, he says, all your commandments are faithful. So he refuses to go the route of these arrogant men. He found no fault in God's law, even in the midst of his trouble. God's way could be rough, but he knew that it was right. He was committed to pleasing the Lord with his life. Now, you could probably think, well, if he were willing to compromise a little bit about some of these beliefs, get a little more in line with what the culture around was saying, he may have avoided some of this persecution. But that wasn't an option for him. It wasn't an option. He reiterates in verse this in verse 87, They almost destroyed me on earth, but as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. So they came near to destroying him. The only reason that didn't happen was because God intervened in some way. But no matter what, He was not going to forsake the commandments of God just because of pressure from others to do that. He could do this not because of personal strength, but because he went to the Lord for help. You may have noticed a simple two-word prayer he prayed at the end of verse 86. After talking about how his enemies had persecuted him, he prays, help me. (laughs) Help me. Just a very simple, but with the context, I mean, what a powerful prayer that is. He knew he needed divine intervention. He needed the Lord to deliver him, and he did. So, as we lament before God about our own exhausting, overwhelming circumstances, whatever they may be, we do it in the context of persevering in our faith, persevering with a conscious dependence. On the Lord for help. Last thing we see in the psalmist lament before God is verse eighty-eight. Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. So, last point: while remembering God's covenant love, ask Him to revive you as you persevere in faith. To revive you, the psalmist prays a very appropriate and necessary prayer. He is he asked the Lord to revive him. Remember, his soul has been languishing, wearing thin for God's deliverance. His eyes have been failing with longing for God's word. He needs comfort. He's feeling overwhelmed by wicked actions from his enemies. He's begging the Lord to act on his behalf. He knows he's in great need of help from the Lord. So he prays for the Lord to revive his soul. He's asking that he would be quickened or he would be energized And uh, in spiritual ways, to be able to endure, and actually endure it—not just endure it, but to endure it in faith and uh, and in rejoicing. And he prays this prayer. Notice he prays this based on the Lord's loving kindness. He says, "Revive me according to your loving kindness." That word "loving kindness" seems to especially speak of God's covenant love. So he's saying, "God, because I'm in covenant with you, you are in covenant with me. I ask you." To revive me, I need it. I need lots of help, and I know you are fully committed to me. So please revive me. I would imagine that we all feel that need of needing revived at times. So this is a good prayer that also should be a regular prayer that we include. But notice what he wants to be revived for. He wants to be revived so that he can keep the testimony of God's mouth. He wants to be faithful in sound doctrine. He wants to stand firm in the ways of God. He wants to live a holy life, even when others are persecuting him because of his holy life. And I love how he reminds himself and reminds us that the testimonies of God come literally from the mouth of God. They are literally God's word. It reminds me of a catechism question I came across many years ago from Baptist Catechism written by James Boyce uh, in the mid-later 1800s. It has this question. Should the Bible be believed and obeyed? Yes, as much so as though God had spoken directly to us. Every time we read the Bible, it's as though God were speaking directly to us. That's something I need to remind myself of on a regular basis. Maybe you do too. So we can and must come to the Lord when we are feeling overwhelmed, when we're feeling exhausted in our Christian life. He will hear. He will help. Lord, we thank you again for the example of the psalmist in these verses and how he illustrates his own prayers in times where he was just feeling overwhelmed, just feeling like he could not go on any further because things had gotten so hard. Lord, sometimes we feel that. Maybe it wasn't to the extent of him. I don't know, but our situations can, be, can vary and are very different. But we oftentimes feel like we feel pressure. We feel stress. We may feel overwhelmed because of what the circumstances are. Lord, I thank you for the direction you've given us, even in these verses, about how we continue to come to you. That doesn't mean we turn away from you. It means we continue to come to you. We continue to ask your help. We continue to ask questions of you. That we just are telling you, here's what's on my heart. Here's what is troubling me. In time, we do that in faith, that you are the God who delivers. You are the God who comforts. You are the God who helps. So, Lord, I ask that you would help us in the situations that we deal with. Now, if you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, then you're still in the context of being an enemy of God. And so I would invite you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. A prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm sinful. I realize I have fallen far short of what God requires of me. But I thank you that, the Lord, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I want to receive him as my Savior I commit my life to him as my Lord. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note in your tear-off, and we can talk about that at a a later time. Or those who who are watching online can reach out to us through the website.